fava bean falafel, Turkish coffee, and mummies. This week, we're in Cairo, Egypt. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. This is Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Thank you for joining me as we explore the world one plate at a time. In a little bit, we'll be talking to my friend Sally Albessier about Cairo, Egypt. Sally is the person behind PassportAndPlates.com, a great website about Sally's travels around the world and the food she's enjoyed along the way. She inhabits a place that I love, the intersection of food and travel, and Sally's family is originally from Egypt, so she talks to me about the dishes her mom made for her growing up, like mashi, and Sally gives tips for visiting Egypt's number one attraction, the pyramids and the Cairo Bazaar. Of course, we talk about the food from Cairo, too, as well as including all the different ways to enjoy fava beans, and there's a lot. Plus, Sally schools me on what it means to be halal. Now, if you're new to the show or if you missed an episode, you can listen to every episode of Destination Eat Drink for free at radiomisfits.com. We've got all 100 plus episodes archived there. And the great thing about these episodes is that you can listen to them anytime. I mean, in the episode about Vienna, we hear about the coffee houses of Vienna. Well, If you listen to that episode when it came out, or if you listen to it today, all these months later, or if you listen to it, say, five years from now, the culture of coffee in Vienna will still be there. This show is what we call evergreen. That means the show is just as relevant today as it was the day it was released. Sure, some of the specific restaurants may come and go over time, but Getting a pan a chocolat in Paris or a currywurst in Berlin or a pizza in Chicago isn't going to change. So head over to radiomisfits.com, scroll through the episodes, and check out some of the old ones you might have missed. Destination Eat Drink. Sally, thanks so much for being on the show. You know, I discovered you and your website, PassportAndPlates.com. I was doing some research on something completely different. I was uh, looking at the Baltic states, and I found your website, and I just went into this rabbit hole. <laughs> I, I All these places that you've been, and it's like a couple hours later, I came up for air, and I was like, man, she's been everywhere. I wanted to talk to you today about Egypt, a place where you've spent some time. You've been multiple times. So I guess my first question is, what made you interested in Egypt, and why did you uh, keep returning? My family is actually part Egyptian. Um, My mom's Egyptian, and I went for the very first time when I was 14. And um, I'd gone multiple times when I was younger with my family, but I was really interested in kind of exploring Egypt on my own, just, you know, kind of going as a tourist, so, you know, quote unquote tourist, and to go and see what does Egypt have to offer besides me hanging out with my cousins, which, (laughs) you know, super fun. That's fun too. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, But just a totally different experience. And so... um, 
I actually had like a nine-year gap between the last time I visited and then I went again in 2017 for the first time. And I loved it. And so since then, I've gone back almost every year. This year, I think, has been the only exception to that. So, and it's been amazing. So that's interesting. Your mom is Egyptian. Yes. Did she cook Egyptian food when you were growing up in the house? Yes, and she still does. So Egyptian food is definitely like a household staple, and I feel like I know pretty much all the dishes at this point. <laughs> <laughs> what were some of your favorite dishes as a child that your mom would make for you that were Egyptian in origin? I'd say one of my favorite is something called mahashi in Arabic. And mashi literally translates to dust. And then when you when you look at the you know the concept or the idea of what mashi is, you have a bunch of different things. So we have stuffed pepper, we have stuffed stuffed grape leaves, we have uh, you know stuffed eggplant. So all of those you know that whole collection of mah- the mashi family, those are all my favorites. Um, I would say my absolute favorite though is what we call in Arabic mashi korumb which is sort of a rice and spice mixture rolled into cabbage. And then the whole okay. thing is cooked. So rice and spices rolled in cabbage. Sounds good. Yeah, so think of it like mini cabbage rolls. And what about yeah. eggplant is one of my favorites. What would you stuff inside an eggplant? So it's the same thing. So basically, like when you make uh, mashi, the, the mixture that goes inside is the same. So my mom makes a, a vegetarian version. So it's, yeah, it's like rice with a bunch of different fresh herbs and spices. Some people add ground beef in. Some people add like some pine nuts. It kind of depends on the family. But it's that same mixture that's stuffed into all these different vegetables. So you've got this mashi. You're growing up with mm-hmm. it. You're eating it as a child. You're loving it as a girl. And then you go to Egypt. Was there any difference between the way your mom made it and what you got when you went to Egypt? In Egypt, I think it's a lot more common. It's it's a lot more common to stuff it with ground beef as well as okay. you know rice and these other mixtures. So for me, I didn't realize that that was you know I thought it was always a vegetarian, right? Right, because <laughs> that's all you had. Yeah, exactly. And then the spice component, I think, is something that's kind of proprietary to every family recipe, right? So, I mean, everyone's biased. I think my mom's is the best, but everyone thinks their mom's is the best, (laughs) right? right? right. So So when you get this uh, mashi, I think one of the things that I would wonder about is, was your mom able to get all the same spices that she could in Egypt or when she came to the U.S., did she have to substitute in other spices because they just weren't available uh, where, where you guys were living? Thankfully, you know, when we moved to the U.S., I was, I was four, um, and we have only ever lived in California. We started in Northern California, made our way down to Southern California. But thankfully, you know, California has always been a very diverse state and continues to be so now. And, and because of that, there's always been access to Arab markets or Middle Eastern, Mediterranean markets. So thankfully, there's a lot of crossover between the spices that are being used. And so I would say for the most part, they've been accessible. So you can get really authentic uh, spices in California. Well, that's good. Yes. So let's say right. um, we're going to Egypt. I'm going to Egypt for the first time. I think the first thing that folks would do is they'd head straight to Cairo and go to the pyramids. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a, that's a great thing to do. What would be your advice, your tips for seeing the pyramids as a person visiting Egypt for the very first time? So I would definitely strongly recommend getting a tour guide. 
specifically for the pyramids. I think no matter how experienced of a traveler you are, Egypt is definitely, and Cairo specifically, is definitely can be a bit of a jarring um, first-time experience. It's, you know, it's really busy, it's really chaotic, and I think sometimes people are a little bit overwhelmed by just how busy and chaotic it is. Same thing with visiting the pyramids specifically. You know, there's a lot of people there that are, like, selling different goods. There's a lot of people that are there trying to get you to, you know, ride their camels or, (laughs) or, you know, the carriages and the horses and things like that. And so I think sometimes that experience can be a bit of a turnoff to a tourist who is there, you know, probably on their first day in Egypt. And it can feel overwhelming. So I always strongly recommend either if you're not going with a tour, at least hiring a guide for the day uh, just so that he or she could show you around and, you know, kind of help shield you from the chaos and really help you kind of cultivate a great experience at the pyramids. And so once you get to the pyramids, what is the experience like? When you get to the the what they call the Giza complex, you first buy your entrance ticket. And so there's a general entrance ticket that allows you access to, uh, you know, all the pyramids as well as things, just that whole complex. And then there's separate tickets if you'd like to go inside the pyramids themselves. I personally have gone inside one of the largest pyramid and I don't really recommend it. It's just kind of an empty, you know, I mean, everything that was excavated is is now in the museum, the Egyptian museum. And so it's a little bit of a like claustrophobic small tunnel. So I always kind of, you know, and there's not much in there. So I personally don't recommend going inside. Um, Yeah. And so I think people are always a little bit surprised by how big the complex is. It's definitely doable by foot, but I think it's, you know, it's worth like spending half, at least half of the day so that you can explore at your leisure. Yeah, you have the large, three large pyramids, you have the smaller pyramids, you have the sphinx, and everything is kind of set up in a way for you to be able to like walk along. There's sort of like a paved road that goes through so that you can access every part of the, of the Giza complex. So you said there's not much left in the pyramids. It's all in the museum. It sounds like the museum is a definite must-see when you go to Cairo. Now the museum is actually in a bit of a transitionary phase. So the original uh, Egyptian museum was actually located in downtown Cairo in Tahrir Square. And right now it's in the process of being moved to actually to Giza. So it's so that it's right next to the pyramids. Um, so that way, you know, people that are visiting the pyramids can go pretty much right after to the museum. Uh, the museum, I believe, is set to open in 2021. The opening has been delayed a couple of times. But um, yes, I would definitely recommend that once that museum is open, that people go in and visit it, because that's really where you get to see a lot of the treasures that were inside the pyramids. So you're seeing the treasures. The question that I have is, do you get to see mummies? Are there mum- Are there actual mummies there? There are, um, which I remember just being like, this is the coolest part of visiting <laughs> right. the, the museum. You know, everyone wants to see a mummy. Uh, so, yeah, they do actually have mummies. Um, I don't know if right now the mummies are still in the old Egyptian museum or if they've already been moved. So that's why I was, you know, I think specifically at this point in time, it's like worth checking to see, you know, where where the museum is at in terms of, uh, transitioning, you know, that, like, all the displays and things like that. But yes, if it's, if that museum is open when you go to Egypt, like, definitely can't miss it. 
Okay, so we've seen pyramids, we've seen mummies. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other things that you that you need to do when you go to Cairo? Maybe some of the uh, the lesser known things. Yeah, so I mean, I think one other popular thing um, is the the bazaar. It's called the Khan al Khalili Bazaar. It is quite an experience. It's kind of an attraction to locals and tourists alike. They sell everything from, you know, like incense to souvenirs to just anything you could possibly imagine. Um, it is definitely, again, another kind of overwhelming experience for tourists. But I do think that if you go to the bazaar, a lot of the areas that are right next to it, including a street called El El Moiz has a ton of ancient buildings, um, a lot of uh, a high density of Islamic monuments in Cairo. So to me, that's like an area that I definitely recommend visiting. There's also, I was going to say in that area, there's some mosques as well, um, including the famous Azhar Mosque. And that's actually part of a university, and it's kind of regarded as, like, the highest religious authority in Egypt. So it's where a lot of the religious scholars go to study. There's a mosque in that, you know, in that area as well. So I think it's an area that's definitely worth seeing, even if bazaars and things like that are not necessarily your cup of tea. Oh, but I I would have to go to the bazaar and just experience the, you know, the whole scene of chaos and fun and all that stuff. When I'm at the bazaar... What do you think would be a really good souvenir for me to bring home if I wanted to bring a gift for friends or family or if I just wanted something for the house? Oh, that's a good question, actually. I mean, I think it really depends on on the person. I know that something that my family always really likes buying from Egypt is actually incense. Mm, Cool. Um, And so, yeah, and so they sell a lot of different, you know, you can buy incense in sticks, like the stick form. Um, or if you have like an incense burner at home, they have oils or like wood chip, like the wooden chips. So it kind of depends, you know, what if, if that's something you're into, that's a gift that I really recommend. They also have a lot of kind of, I, you know, those like just like really fun statues of like pyramids and, and things like that, which I know are a little bit kind of like cheesy souvenirs. Um, but we totally have those at my house <laughs> as well. So, you know. <laughs> hey, I've, I've written about this before. I'm totally in favor of cheap plastic tchotchkes. <laughs> My theory is we have a bunch of these refrigerator magnets and they're cheap and they're plastic and they're probably not even made in the country where we got them. They're probably made in China somewhere, but they're on the refrigerator. And so every time I go to the refrigerator to get some water or to get a snack or something, I can look at these and go, oh yeah, remember when we were in X, Y, and Z, you know, wasn't that, even though it's a cheap little plastic thingy. I'm exactly the same. My entire fridge, like all the, you know, both doors are completely covered with magnets um, from places that I go. Because you're right, it is like a nice, easy to carry, uh, cheap souvenir. And you see it every day and you get to reflect on like what a great experience you had in in whatever country you're visiting. So Sally, you mentioned uh, the mosque in Cairo. And my question is this. So when I go to, especially to Italy, um, we always want to go into the churches because there's all this artwork there. And if I'm going to go to a mosque, how can I, as a person who's not familiar with the Islamic religion, appreciate it? What should I look for? What kinds of things should I do and see when I'm in this mosque to fully appreciate it? 
So, I mean, I think the first thing to understand is, is like, just from before you even go inside a mosque, right, is how you dress. You're dressing in a way that's respectful to the fact that this is a place of worship. For women, that means covering your hair and covering, you know, your arms and legs. And for men, it means covering at least up until your knees. But if not, you know, wearing pants and then also covering your shoulders. So wearing a T-shirt or some or a long sleeve shirt um, and taking and for both genders, you know, removing your shoes and you go inside. I think that's one thing that really differs in mosques in terms of the inside compared to a church, you know, especially some of the European cathedrals and churches with all that artwork is that. Designs inside mosques are meant to be sort of non-distracting, right? We don't, there's no paintings, there's no mosaics, there's none of that. Because just, you know, as a religion, people see it as, as you go into a mosque and you're there, you know, to worship. You're not there to kind of observe these, all these like kind of artistic interpretations, right? So that doesn't mean that there's no design inside the mosque. And, and some of the mosques in this area specifically, I think it's worth going in and seeing, you know, there's beautiful carpet that's set up. There's lots of, you know, old columns. There um, is a lot of Islamic calligraphy from the Quran that's written inside. So those are things that are worth taking a look at. And then also uh, there is the place where the imam, which is sort of like the pastor or the preacher, um, stands and leads the prayer. And so that area inside the mosque usually is kind of like carved out in sort of like a doorway looking, like an archway um, into the wall. And then there's usually like sort of an intricate design um, kind of in that area. And it's worth noting that, uh, you know, um, Muslims pray facing towards the Kaaba, which is in Saudi Arabia. And so, you know, noting that the direction that that is facing, like when you face in that direction, you're facing towards Saudi Arabia. Let's get back to food. Yes. Because now we've seen pyramids. We've been in the museum. We visited a mosque. Now I'm starving. (laughs) (laughs) In Egypt, what are some of your favorite foods to eat? So the number one food of the national dish of Egypt also happens to be one of my absolute favorites. It's called kosheri. And kosheri is basically an explosion of carbs. <laughs> um, it is pasta, rice, lentils, uh, chickpeas, and then grilled, like topped with grilled onions. And then the whole thing is topped with a tomato and spice-based sauce, and then also like a garlicky vinegar sauce. And some people put some people put um, hot sauce on theirs as well. Oh. Man, that sounds awesome. It is absolutely delicious. Totally one of my favorite things. It's the dish that I eat every time. I The first dish that I eat when I land in Cairo and the last dish I eat before I leave. Okay. Koshari. So when we're in Cairo, um, where's your go-to spot to get koshari? Okay. So there's a lot of uh, debate over where the best spot is to get koshari. Bring it on because I love these food debates. It's my favorite thing. <laughs> You know, every time I ask someone, they'll give me a different, they'll give me a different right, place right. to try. So, I personally, I love a place called Kosheri Abu Tariq, and it is located in downtown, um, in downtown Cairo, not far from Tahrir Square. And the interesting thing about Kosheri or, or restaurants that kind of specialize in Kosheri in general is like that is all they serve. Oh, okay. So you go. Yes, you go to Kosheri Abu Tariq or any of the like places that are literally specifically for Kosheri, and 
the menu is literally just sizes. Oh. Small, medium, large, extra large, whatever, and that's it. And then the other thing is, Kushiti is uh, kind of like, it's like a, because it's a staple dish and it's like vegetarian, very filling and carb filled, it's relatively inexpensive. So it's like kind of a dish for, for everyone. Like, you know, it's, it's an accessible, inexpensive dish that is also really delicious and filling. So if I go into a kosheri shop, there's not going to be three different kinds of kosheri. Like this one has onions on it, but this one doesn't have onions on it. And this one has a different kind of pasta. It's just that's their kosheri. That's what they make. And you decide whether you want small, medium or large. And that's it. Yes. So now there's... Love it. Yeah, I mean, same. I'm just like, this is so great. Like, you know, I don't have to make any decisions. <laughs> <laughs> um, that being said, I mean, you can customize the spice level. Obviously, if you want it to be, like, spicy or whatever. But uh, besides that, there's no customization. However, you know, now um, there's always new, you know, there's, the food scene is always changing in Egypt and and elsewhere. And so now there are more, like, pop-up shops, shops and things like that that are doing you know, some, like, less traditional takes on kosheri. So there is a restaurant, for example, that is not, you know, not just a kosheri place, but they do serve, like, for example, we'll have, like, kosheri made with, like, whole grain pasta, and then they also have, like, the original recipe. Different variations. Some places now, you know, you can get, like, kosheri with shawarma topping, you know, with, with, like, the ground, like, the, like, the beef topping and things like that. So, but I, I prefer the original, you know. Why mess with a good thing? Right. What's another favorite dish of yours in Egypt? So another favorite dish of mine is actually called hawaushi. And hawaushi is basically a, it's a sandwich, so in summary. Um, <laughs> and it's, um, it's specifically, it's a minced beef sandwich. So it sounds like really simple, but, you know, kind of forgettable. But, you know, the specialty places that specialize in that, do such a good job. So essentially, it's kind of like a roasted sandwich. It's made with like a bread that's kind of like a perfectly thin bread that they cook in a wooden wooden oven and it crisps the bread so well that you would honestly think it was deep fried. And then what goes inside the actual sandwich besides the ground beef often depends on you, right? So the traditional one is kind of served with just ground beef and onion. But if you go to a halaoshi place, like, there's tons of, you know, you can get it with cheese, you can get it with peppers, you can get it with a ton of different options. This sounds like a a street food dish. Would this be, you'd go in and have it for takeaway, or would you be sitting down and eating this? It is more of a takeaway dish. So a lot of the, uh, yeah, like the food stands and things like that do serve it. The place that I go to does have, like, indoor seating if you want to sit and actually have the cushiony. But um, it's sort of part of a interestingly enough, it's part of a butcher shop. So you have the butcher shop next door and then they get the meat directly from there and they, you know, use it to make the halaoshi sandwiches. Yeah, it's more commonly a takeaway dish, but like, you know, you can also sit inside and kind of just do a quick meal. From reading your website, I ran across a piece of information that just blew my tiny little mind to bits. (laughs) And that is that falafel is not made with chickpeas, but is made with fava beans. Yes. Can you talk about this a little bit? Yes. Okay. In Egypt, and it's the only place of all the countries that, you know, that make falafel and eat it commonly, that use fava beans instead of chickpeas to make their falafel. And it's more actually called, 
um, in Egypt they call it Tameya. But if you call it that, you know, falafel, like people will know what you're talking about as well. Basically, the process of making falafel is, you know, overnight you soak the beans. So in this case, it'd be fava beans. And then the next day, it's, you're basically create, like mixing the, the beans with a bunch of fresh herbs, cilantro, and uh, parsley, and dill. Like, again, kind of the mixture sort of is proprietary to every person or family. Uh, and then that's what makes that mixture. So, yeah, there's an interesting debate because Egyptians are very, feel very strongly that Egyptian tamaya slash falafel is superior to the chickpea version. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Can I ask you what your personal opinion is? Yes. I personally actually prefer the chickpea version. Mm-hmm. So um, my dad is Sudanese, so my mom has, she, she makes both, right? So she makes, like, she's made the chickpea version, she's made the fava bean version, fava bean version, and I personally prefer the chickpea version. But to each of them. <laughs> I love chickpeas. I love fava beans, but generally I've, I've only had them in southern Italy and only at a certain uh, season because they mostly serve them, you know, when they're, when they're fresh in the spring. But I've never, I've had fava bean puree, but having it uh, fried like a falafel, Man, that sounds really cool. I've really got to try that at some point. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess I got to have fi- find an Egyptian restaurant here who's going to be willing to do that for me. Absolutely. If you find an Egyptian restaurant, I would like, guarantee that their falafel is made with with fava beans. And and actually, fava beans in general are such a huge staple of Egyptian cuisine, right? So you were talking about like a fava bean puree. They eat that in Egypt in two different forms. A lot of times, like your breakfast could could really have like three different kinds of fava beans, which is oh, really wow. crazy. Yeah. We have falafel, which is made with fava beans. And then we also have a dish called ful, which is literally just Arabic for fava beans. And basically it's kind of like, it's like mashed up fava beans. And then it's made in like hundreds of different ways, right? So there's no like, this is how you cook ful. Kind of the most basic version includes, like, it's, like, the beans, salt, pepper, cumin, and olive oil. They actually have food carts all over Cairo. So, you know, anytime around breakfast, you you can always find these, like, carts all around the city. You'll find a bunch of people standing around them, like, eating food with uh, pita bread. Everyone has their go-to, like, food guy. Another, like, dish that has, that's also made with fava beans that's common in Egypt is called bisara. And basada is a fava bean puree, but it's the fava beans that are used are the sprouted ones. So it's actually like the green. I believe they're not like fully mature yet. And so it actually is like a green, like kind of like a green fava bean puree. So, yeah, it's interesting that you could literally, you know, you could go to a breakfast table and have three different kinds of, of fava beans on there. <laughs> and they'd all be completely different. It's not like, oh, they're kind yeah. of all the same. That's great. Yeah, exactly. Now, like I said, Sally, I've I've done a, a dive into your website, and you talk about um, halal food and halal diet, and you sometimes use the word halal-ish. Yes. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm wondering, um, as someone who doesn't know a lot about halal, I mean, I know that it means no pork and no alcohol, but I'm sure there's much more to it than that. Can you explain specifically what halal means? Halal is kind of like it's basically meat that is killed in a way that adheres to Islamic law. You know, animals are supposed to be slaughtered. They're cut like in a 
specific a specific part of the throat, a specific vein that I don't know exactly what it's called. And the animals are supposed to be, you know, alive and healthy when they're being slaughtered. The blood has to be drained from the from the you know the body, and there's supposed to be a there's like a phrase. Uh, it's called the shahada uh, that is recited. You know, when you're cutting this animal, kind of just sort of like a blessing type thing to say, you know, like, I'm like killing this animal for the purpose of, of eating nourishment, like it's, it's sort of a sentiment behind it. Yeah, so that's sort of, that's what halal refers to in terms of the meat that, that's being consumed. And yes, that also means uh, no pork, like Muslims don't eat pig at all. So anything that, you know, when I say halal-ish, it's because when I travel, or even you know, even here, it's I I don't necessarily only eat meat that is like halal certified. However, I don't eat pork and I don't drink alcohol, and so that's why I say oh, if I'm going to a restaurant, even if they don't necessarily offer like strictly halal food, I will never put on the menu. Like I will never write a food guide, or I would never eat like pork or alcohol because it's not something that most Muslim, like practicing Muslims eat or consume. Before we let you go, let's talk about uh, drinks because I know that coffee is important in Egypt. What kind of coffee would we be drinking when we're in Egypt? Yeah, so um, interestingly, Egypt has both like a coffee and the tea culture. I would say that the tea culture is a little bit stronger. Like it's more commonly found to drink like tea with um, either black tea or tea with milk. And then drinking tea, uh, and mint is also like a very common ingredient that's added into sure, sure. Into tea as well. In terms of coffee, what is most like commonly had in, so in Egypt, the coffee culture is really interesting. They actually have these places that are called ahwas, which literally translates to coffees. Um, <laughs> and it's kind of, they're kind of like, um, they're sort of, yeah, they're cafes, but you can go, you can like smoke. Puka, you can play at backgammon. It's sort of more of like sort of an older men hangout, like kind of like the dads also and hang out there <laughs> and catch up. But the coffee that's most commonly drank there and in a lot of cafes in general is actually Turkish coffee. So I don't know if you're familiar with Turkish coffee or not. I love Turkish coffee because, first of all, it's really strong. So I like yeah. that. And I also like it because you can't chug it down. Otherwise, you get a throat full of coffee grounds. The coffee grounds are on, are on the bottom. So you kind of have to sit there and, and sip it and be, and be careful. But tell me about Turkish coffee in Egypt. It's interesting because having been to Turkey, I would say that the Turkish coffee in Egypt tastes a little bit different. I mean, it's the same in terms of the concept. You know, it's brewed the same way. You do have like a big thick layer of, of the um, ground coffee at the end. You definitely can't chug it down. But I do believe they add in some special, like, excuse me, proprietary uh, spices in there to kind of, like, because the taste is a little bit different. Another interesting thing about Turkish coffee in Egypt is the idea that you can read your fortune okay. in the coffee grounds. Okay, um, cool. Yeah, so some people... How does that work? Um, so some people are, you know, supposed specialists or know how to do it. One of the people that lives in my grandma's building, for example, <laughs> when she comes every time I go to visit, she's like, oh, I'm going to read your fortune for you. And so once you've, um, once you've finished your coffee, you kind of you turn the cup upside down and let it drain, you know, just the, the last bit kind of drain out. And it dries up a little bit. And then she like 
turns it around and opens, you know, she looks at the coffee grounds and she's like, whatever, you're going to live a long life and you're going to get married next year and all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of like just like a fun sort of thing where it's like, ooh, like, tell me what my fortune says. Uh, I, I, I personally don't really think about that seriously, but I think it's always kind of fun to have her read my, uh, my fortune in the coffee. <laughs> so, Sally, are you happy with what your grandma's friend told you? Uh, yeah, for the most part. I mean, sometimes it's a little bit accurate, which kind of freaks me out. Like, how did you know that? <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, generally, it, it, she shares the positive stuff, which is good. So how, you know, if we don't know your grandma, how would we get someone <laughs> to uh, tell us our fortune with Turkish coffee if we're just a visitor? So in that, in the bazaar that I was mentioning earlier, there's a lot of like little coffee shops that are down like alley, like, you know, in, in some of the smaller like streets off of the main bazaar. And I bet that they, you know, have people there that like will also like read your coffee grounds and tell you your fortune. Perfect. Well, Sally from PassportAndPlates.com, thanks for being on the program today. It's been fun and interesting talking to you, and I'm thinking about uh, going to Egypt and having some fava bean falafel and having my fortune told in a cup of Turkish coffee. Awesome. That's, you know, that was the goal, to get you to want to come to Egypt. All right. There you go. Sally from Passport and Plates. You can get a link to her site in the show notes at radiomisfits.com or just go to passportandplates.com. She's got some great, great stuff on her site. Head over to DestinationEatDrink.com. I've got dozens of foodie travel guides to cities all over the world and a blog with my latest thoughts, recipes, and favorite places. This week, I posted about a special cheese from Portugal. Read about that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by Ed Silla and the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Thank you, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. Wear your effing mask. And I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.